Do you ever get distracted and end up not paying attention? I can't imagine that ever happening during a sermon. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was in the drive-through at Taco Bell just down the street, and I placed my order. As I pulled up to the window, I handed the bubbly worker my debit card, and with a smile, she rang me up, handed me my card back, and I proceeded to drive away. Just before pulling onto 38th Street, I realized that I hadn't waited for my food. And so I sheepishly looked in my rearview mirror, put my trusty cobalt in reverse, and went back to the window. And as I pulled up, I could look inside, and all the employees were laughing hysterically. And with her hand over her mouth because she was guffawing, the young woman handed me my food. And so I said, hey, are you all laughing at my expense? And with her eyes filling with tears, she said, yes. <laughs> that was really funny. So I was reminded of Proverbs 17, 22, which says, a happy heart is good medicine. So I'm glad I could spread some happiness and some good health in our neighborhood. Well, as we wrap up our Ten Commandments series, it's my hope that none of us get distracted that none of us lose focus because God has a good meal for us today. Let's review the summary statements that we've been using in our series. I'll put them up on the screen as well, but if you know them, say them with me. Let's say them. One God, no idols, revere his name, remember to rest, honor parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. Well, here's how we summarize commandment number 10 last weekend. The key to not coveting what others have, well, it's to be content with what you already have. Our focus today is on how Christ considered the commandments. And here's our main thought. Because Jesus fulfilled the commandments, you and I must put our faith in him and follow his commands. I see six ways Jesus interacted with the commandments. Number one, Jesus completely fulfilled every one of the commandments. Matthew 5:17, Jesus said, "Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." The word abolish can be translated as dissolve or destroy. So instead of abolishing the commandments, Jesus fulfilled them. It means to accomplish. Galatians 4:4 4, 4 says Jesus was born under the law, Matthew 3.15 declares he fulfilled all righteousness. 1 Peter 2.22 goes a step further and says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Number two, Jesus deepened the commandments by applying them to the heart. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus shocked a bunch of self-righteous religious people who believed that they were living moral lives. This is what he said in his sermon. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you drop down a few more verses, 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's commandment number seven. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So because Jesus fulfilled the commandments, you and I must put our faith in him and follow his commands. Number three, Jesus distilled all the commands all the commands into two. So one day, an expert in God's law came up to Jesus. He was trying to trick Jesus. He asked him a question. Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is at the top? What's the greatest commandment? Listen to Jesus' stunning answer, verses 37 and 40, Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, we've pointed out in our series that the first four commandments represent love for God. The final six commands uh, represent our call, the call to love our neighbors. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Number four, Jesus paid the penalty we deserve for breaking the commandments. One of the purposes of God's commands is for you and I to say, man, I'm busted. I fall short. And perhaps that's been your reaction listening to the sermons. You're like, I don't feel so good about that because I've broken that. That's actually one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments. It's so you and I know that we miss the mark of his perfection. And by the way, if you claim to keep all the commandments, well, then you're breaking the ninth commandment about not lying. In John 19.30, Jesus is on the cross. He shouts out these words. In Greek, it's one word. In English, it's three. It is finished. Would you note, he didn't say, I'm finished, like he defeated, like, "Uh uh-oh, they got me, and I'm up here on the cross. How did that happen? He didn't say that. His death was not an accident. It's not as if a great injustice was done. No, in fact, by his death, justice was fully satisfied so you and I can be declared righteous. Now, we learn from the other Gospels, this shout was trumpeted in a loud voice. So don't think of Jesus leaving earth quietly. No, here he shouted this out. It wasn't a whimper. It was the cry of a conqueror, a roar of victory, a thunderous declaration of triumph. Plus, it's in the present tense, meaning it's been completed in the past with results continuing into the present. It reads like this. It was finished and as a result is forever done. Nothing more is needed. Listen, since Jesus paid it all, there's nothing more that needs to be done. Do you believe that, church? You see, salvation is not a DIY project where you do your part and he does his part. It's not like you do 50% and he does 50%. No, Jesus has done it all. There's nothing more to do. And some of you need to hear that because you're trying to clean yourself up. You're trying to be good. You're trying to be better to make yourself presentable to God in the hopes that somehow he'll accept you. Well, I got to give you some bad news. You cannot make enough changes to meet God's requirements. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags. But here's the good news. You don't have to because Jesus did it all for you. Number five, Jesus expects his followers to live out his commands. Listen to what Jesus said, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 15, 12, one chapter later, he specifies what this command looks like. This is my commandment. That should get our attention. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he repeats this call to love in John 15, 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Speaking of the commandments, Kevin DeYoung writes this. Do they serve to show us our sin and lead us to the cross? Absolutely. Ah, but the commandments also show us the way to live. The law is not only our duty, but it's also our delight. So listen, once you're saved, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to live out his commandments. In Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, I will put my law within them. He does more. He says, I will write it on their hearts 
and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Because Jesus fulfilled the commandments, we must put our faith in him and follow his commands. Number six, and we're going to linger on this one. Jesus used the commandments evangelistically. The best way to convince someone of their need for the Savior is to recognize their utter and complete sinfulness. Listen, get this. The commandments are not the means of salvation. No, instead they show us our need for salvation. So let's look at how Jesus used the Ten Commandments. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. If you have your Bible with you, you could open up to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. We do have Bibles in front of you as well, or you're welcome to look at the words up on the screen. I'd like you to see God's Word with your eyes, hear it with your ears. I'm going to read it. You listen, and let's be reminded this is a holy moment. This book is alive, it's active sharp, and this book is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's authoritative. Let's give him our attention. And as he, this is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. He had a question. He asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Notice he takes him to the commandments, verse 19. Do you know the commandments? Or you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Unbelievably, this guy says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You can be seated. So this seeker of truth seemed to have everything he needed. I mean, he was a ruler. He was like a celebrity in his society. Well-respected, we know from the other gospel accounts, a lot of money. But he's not satisfied with his legalistic, performance-based, graceless religion. The fact that he ran up to Jesus shows us he was earnest. It was not common for somebody at that position to be seen running anywhere. He sees Jesus. He runs up to him. What would you notice next? He kneels in front of Jesus. So I picture him wearing designer clothes, kneeling in the dirt before the peasant preacher, It shows us not only was he earnest, but he had sincere humility. See, all of his life, he had been taught that he needed to do good things in order to be saved. But something is stirring inside of him. Something's troubling him. He starts out by calling Jesus good. Maybe he hoped for a reciprocal greeting, or perhaps he's using flattery to impress Jesus, maybe saying something like, hey, Jesus, you're a good guy. Well, Jesus stopped him, and he said, Why do you call me good when only God is intrinsically good? Instead of answering his inquiry, Jesus made the man realize that the essence of goodness is God alone. 1 Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. You know, one of the statements of faith that gets shouted out on a regular basis at Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights is this, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is great. Now, Jesus was pointing out that this guy was not good. Only God is. See, his concept of good was inadequate. It was in error. It confused his perception of Jesus. It clouded the understanding, his understanding of himself. Listen, until he saw 
Jesus as God incarnate who demanded his complete allegiance and until he recognized his own sinfulness, he could not find the eternal life he was searching for. In short, he thought too little of Jesus and he thought way too much of himself. We could say it like this. He overestimated his own goodness and grossly underestimated the greatness of Jesus. Now, it's a common belief that a person must perform to earn eternal life. Well, you see that all over the place even today. This man was used to working hard, so he naturally asked this question. What must I what? Do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The tense of the original indicates he expected Jesus to assign him a good deed, and he was prepared to perform that good deed on the spot. So Jesus lists the commandments. The man mentally checks them off. And then he declares to him in verse 20, he said to him, teacher, notice he's dropped the adjective good, All these I have kept from my youth. That's unbelievable. He's saying he's kept all of those without fail. That word kept means to continue to keep a law from being broken. That phrase, from my youth, was a way of saying since my bar mitzvah, since he became a man. Bar mitzvah means son of the law. So the young man was convinced he had kept all of God's standards for goodness. So he was able to say he'd not committed adultery. He hadn't knocked anybody off. He hadn't committed murder. He'd never stolen. He never lied. He always honored his father and mother. And while he may have kept the letter of the law of these five commands, Jesus showed him the true state of his depravity. Today, many believe that God will add up their good deeds and their misdeeds And many today hope there's more good deeds than bad deeds. And if you have more good, well, then you're good to go. That's not how it works. See, this moral man may have kept some of the commandments most of the time, but it's impossible to keep all of them all of the time. This man had broken the first and second commandments by making money his master. Shekels were his savior, gold was his God. This man thought that he kept commandments five through nine, so he's good. But when Jesus applied the 10th commandment about not coveting, when he applied that to his heart, he balked and he walked. Now, we learned last weekend the sin of coveting is subtle. It's difficult to detect. And yet, it can cause a person to break all the other commandments. His possessions were his God, and he thought he was good enough not to even need God. Listen to this perspective of one commentator. Before you can talk about the gospel, people must understand they are not good. The purpose of the law is to kill, to crush, to show how perfectly good God is and how utterly evil man is. People don't believe that. So they go to hell believing they're good. We don't miss what we read in Mark 10, 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This word for look is not the word glance. It's the idea of gazing. Jesus locked eyes with him. And would you know what it says? He looked and he loved. He loved this man. The word for love here means a strong affection. So this man loved his money. He loved his possession. He loved his status more than anything else. And yet... Jesus still lavished him with love. Don't miss this. Jesus didn't love the man because he was good or because he kept all the religious requirements. It was just the opposite. Jesus loved him knowing he was a sinner. Jesus loved him knowing that man was a command breaker. Ah, just like us. Jesus loves you no matter what state you are in right now, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been doing. He looks at you and he loves you. 
See, he sees your sins piling up. He sees more sin in your life than you do. And yet, he looks at you with love. And he says, you lack one thing. Go sell. Go sell what you have. And give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus loves. Jesus looks. He loves. And he says, here's what you're lacking. Observe, he's tender and he's tough. He's gracious and he's filled with truth. That word lack means to fall short, to be late, to be behind. Now, let me be quick to say, it doesn't mean that each of us have to sell everything we have in order to be a follower of Christ. Jesus is addressing a very specific idol that this guy had, and in so doing, he exposes his heart. He personalized the message for him. When Jesus says, come, follow me, We're reminded that he wants faithful followers, not fickle fans who clap for him and go, Jesus. Yeah, I'm for Jesus. No, he wants faithful followers. This could be translated like this. Here, come here, come, and then go where I go. We must come to him and commit to him going where he goes and doing what he wants us to do. Jesus is Savior and he is Lord. Let me ask you a question. What one thing is keeping you from fully following Christ? Jesus knows what it is. And my guess is you do too. Jesus looks at you with love and asks this one thing you lack. So what's holding you back? What's keeping you from full surrender? Could it be money? Could it be a possession? Or could it be an activity, an unholy relationship? Is it your time? Could it be a bad habit you secretly enjoy? Is it your own sense of goodness? Frankly, you think you're a good person and Jesus bores you. You're like, I don't really need that. Well, just as Jesus pinpointed the root problem for this man, he looks at you and me with love. And he says, this one thing you lack, let it go. Own it, repent of it, let it go, and then come, follow me. Most people today think they're intrinsically good, or at least better than others. But here's the problem. If you don't admit you're a sinner, you'll never see your need for a savior. And if you break just one commandment just one time, you're in deep trouble, James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Think of this. This man turned down the gift of eternal life because of his coveting heart. His hands were so clenched around his money, he couldn't imagine devoting his life to Jesus as his master. He possessed many possessions, but actually it was his possessions, possessions who were, which were possessing him. Mark 10, vividly describes an individual who's more in love with himself than with God and others. One of the saddest verses in scripture. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful. That word for sorrowful can be translated as overcast, gloomy, somber, confounded. It's the idea of storm clouds gathering. Recall, this man ran up to Jesus hit his knees before him. And now, 
He's disheartened. He's got this hurricane going on in his soul. And he walks away. Would you notice Jesus doesn't go chasing after him? That's striking to me. He lets him go. Would you also notice he doesn't change the standards? He doesn't preach a different message. He doesn't make it easier, more palatable. No, he doesn't do any of that. Listen, you and I must come to Christ on his terms, not ours. I'm reminded of the three sermons we preached from Luke 9.23. We took three messages in one verse. Here's why. Listen to what it says. Words of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So our desire to be saved must lead to denial of self, death to sin, and devotion to our Savior. We quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer during that series who said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. This guy had everything money could buy, and yet it didn't satisfy And he ended up missing out on something far more important. He saw it. He caught a glimpse of it. He knew who had the answer. He ran to him. He knelt before him. But he walked away. People do this all the time. They recognize Jesus can satisfy all that they need, and yet they don't want to fully follow him. They don't really like, want him to be in charge You don't want to give up what they've been serving. And I can't think of anything sadder than that question for you. Are you going to walk away from the one, the only one who we just sang about? The only one who can give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life and purpose in life? Of all the people who came to the feet of Jesus, this man, as far as I know, is the only one who went away worse than he came. He's not willing to admit he's a sinner. So he had no need for a savior. Jesus preached the commandments to him, but because he wouldn't deal with his lawlessness, he missed the good news of the gospel. The Bible never mentions this man again. Jesus showed him the way of life. This man left. And as far as we know, he never came back. Maybe he didn't like having his sinful heart exposed. I mean, who does? That's uncomfortable. That's vulnerable. When you see the darkness and the ugliness and the selfishness and the sin in your own heart. But this guy is right in front of the only one who can forgive all that and cleanse all that. Maybe he's looking for an easier way. And so he just walked away. What about you? Many today come close to Christ. Some even try to keep the commandments. A few might even be respectful of Jesus. Dear ones, let the commandments clobber you. Let them kill your pride. Allow them to cause you to tremble. And then admit your sin and repent of it. Uh, then you'll be in a spot to know the Savior. So you can only know the Savior until or when you would first admit you're a sinner. Only someone who's in a mess knows they need a mediator. Have you ever asked someone whether they're going to heaven and heard an answer like this? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Or I'm trying to live a good life. I was helped several years ago by something Ray Comfort suggests. He asked this question, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And then he follows it up with this. How many lies have you told? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? And then he ends this way. If God were to judge you based on the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? And if someone's honest and courageous, they'd have to admit they're guilty which then leads right into a gospel conversation. Now, I'd be doing you a disservice if you left this service just trying to be good. 
If your application of the Ten Commandments is, I just got to be better, I got to try harder, I got to work harder. Listen, some of you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus says to you today, that's the one thing you lack. This man was looking for a due religion. Jesus offers a relationship that's based on done. Everything's done. John chapter 6, someone asked Jesus a question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? That question is in the plural. Jesus, what are the works that we need to do? Oh, they're looking for a list of things to do. Oh, I can't wait to share the answer Jesus gave. Jesus answers in the singular This is the work of God that should get our attention, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And because Jesus fulfilled the commandments, we must put our faith in him and follow his commands. So Jesus is looking at you. He can look right into your soul, and he loves you. And if you don't know him as Savior, if you're not following him as Lord, he says, one thing you lack. If you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone, you still lack one thing. Let me say it like this. This man had many things, but because he lacked the one thing, he missed everything. Now, he was right about one thing. He was right that eternal life is inherited. Remember, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, eternal life is a gift. It's inherited. It can't be earned. The only way to get it is through a family relationship, which comes through the new birth. This afternoon, 11 people are going to get baptized celebrating their new birth. Yeah, praise God for that. We thought it would be helpful to put the names up on the screen so that maybe you go, oh, I know that person. I want to come and support them. Get this. I think this is the first time in the years of ministry that the Lord has allowed me to be part of where the age range is this. The youngest is 10. The oldest couple, 88 years old. Yeah. In fact, I can't see everybody, but if I know there's many in this service who are being baptized. Can you raise your hand if you're being baptized today? Okay, look around. Okay, they're in the back, the aliens. Yep, and Brandon over there. So one of the individuals being baptized is my friend Brandon Randleman, seated right over here in Brandon gave me permission to share part of his story. Christ was introduced to me, he writes, at an early age, but with family separations and constant moving, church was not a regular thing for me. The days that I did go to church seemed to always bore me. The lessons were always black and white. With Here's the message Brandon remembers growing up. Do good and come to church. With never going deep in theology and the why of who God is, I I just seem to drift more and more. He writes, COVID changed everything. It made me realize that self-preservation is a path that is lost and lonely, and being in a spot of pitch black became unbearable, and only through the unwavering love of Christ could I find true peace and resolve. Brandon's spiritual birthday was two months ago, June 1st. And I had, yeah. And and I had the joy of watching Jesus save him right out there in the fireside room. We were meeting on the couches there. By the way, right before the service today, this young man, 17 years old, got saved two days ago, right? Laramie, yeah, praise God for that. 
Don't you love being part of a church where life change is happening, where people are coming to faith in Christ? And so we asked Brandon why he wanted to get baptized. He said this, after reading a few passages and meeting with the pastor at church to solidify the need for baptism, it just made sense. Logically and theologically, this is a crucial thing that is needed. And this is how he ends. I am all in. Yeah, praise God. Friends, so listen. We all, we all get distracted. We all stop paying attention, and we do it all the time. But remember this, Jesus paid the price. And yet some of us, some of us are content just to pull away without receiving what he has paid for. It's time to put it in reverse to repent of your sins, believe in Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness purchased for you on the cross and validated by his resurrection. If you'd close your eyes, you could pray something like this if this is where you're at today. God, I do realize that, well, that I have darkness in my own soul. And Lord, there's been times in my life I've tried to do what's good, and there's other times I've just kind of bagged that and just lived for myself. And Lord, just hearing your commands, I'm a command breaker. I'm busted. I own it. I'm a sinner. I don't want to live like that anymore, and so I repent of my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place on the cross, for finishing the work completely. It's all done. Thank you that your blood paid the full and final price for all of my sins, satisfying the righteous and holy justice of God. Because of your resurrection, Jesus, give me that power to live my life now so I believe I receive. Save me from my sins. Help me to follow you faithfully, fully. I want to be all in for your purposes, for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, I would love to chat with you after the service and get you some material to get you started in your walk with Christ. Edgewood is all about making disciples who make disciples by gathering, growing, giving, and going with the gospel, all for the glory of God. I shared last weekend that our giving to missions is 12.7% of our budget. I'm thrilled about that. Bless you, Edgewood, for being so giving. I wanted to share an update. Because of your generosity through the Baby Bottle Project, through Pregnancy Resources, nearly $6,000 came in for our Go Team partners. Thank you for doing that. Incidentally, many of you know Corey McAnally. Corey has Down syndrome. Corey, on his own, is raising $2,500 for pregnancy resources. He already has received over $1,300. So speaking of missions, I can't wait to introduce you to our newest Go Team partners, uh, Mike and Rachel Aubrey. Uh, They will be serving with Wycliffe Bible translators. Uh, Last night when they came, we had lunch this past week, so they came last night, and um, good to see you again. You guys have had a full weekend here with us, so we're glad you're here. So I was trying to help them find a place to sit, and I said, you don't have to sit in the front row. And they both looked at me, and they said, well, we're used to that. Well, here's why. Both of their dads are pastors, and so you grew up on the front row, right? Yeah. And, and you grew up in gospel preaching uh, churches. Uh, your dad was the pastor at First United Presbyterian Church mm-hmm. here in Moline. Yeah. Your dad, a friend of mine, is the pastor mm-hmm. at First Free yep. uh, here in Moline. And God has brought you guys together. And now you're with, with Wycliffe. Fill yeah. in some of those details. How did all that happen? Yeah. Our story starts with a seesaw. Or uh, a, um, I just forgot, teeter-totter. That's the one I was saying. I said teeter-totter in the other service and then went to seesaw. So now I'm seesawing back and forth. Teeter-totter, seesaw. 
we met at a Bible camp. So we were on staff together, and we were playing with the kids, teaching them how to use a teeter-totter and how to make the teamwork go so that it can go up and down. You can thwart the other side by leaning way back and holding them up in the air if you want to, but if you want it to work, you go up and down together as a team. So God directed our paths separately from one another in college. We went to different schools, but that's where he was teaching us and shaping us, where we learned about how there's still 180 million people in the world who do not have the scriptures in a language they can actually understand. So from there, when we, got, when we came together in marriage, we spent our first year uh, studying linguistics. That's where we started. And for several more years, we were in school together. And this is where we learned how to analyze languages from all over the world, their grammatical structures, and we learned that we were a good team, that we complemented one another, that we worked together well. Um, and this is then where God took us next. We went to Faith Life, the makers of Logos Bible software. Some of you might have heard that. If you talk with a pastor... He probably uses Logos Bible software. Um, it's available for scholars, for pastors, for students to be able to study the scriptures and understand what's going on. So we were making tools and resources for all of these people within that software. One of our uh, most recent projects together that we have the privilege of working on with one another was on Greek prepositions. And I can already see your excitement. I see your temptation. You want to get in on that? Uh, we're the ones to talk to. Greek prepositions. We were talking about what they mean, how they function in the New Testament, and then how we can understand the New Testament from there. And so all together, all of these pieces from the teeter-totter or seesaw, when we were teaching people about how to be a team, to becoming a team in our studies, and then in our work experience, that's what led Wycliffe to invite us to mm. our specific assignment in Bible mm. translation. Mm. And how about, uh, what will you be doing with with Cliff, based on all your experience, right. yes. how has God put that all together? Yes, so we uh, will not be tied to a specific language or translation project in a different country somewhere else in the world. Our focus is sort of generally international. We are going to be serving um, and ministering to various translation teams around the world, and part of that is because when translators working on their projects, uh, they need the best and uh, highest quality resources that they can get their hands on for doing their work. And when they encounter a difficulty or a question about the biblical text, they need the best, in best information they can, they can get. Um, so what we will be doing is we will be using our experience and our training in linguistics and biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, to producing new digital uh, translation resources that they can use in order to um, best produce Bible translations and, um, that are clear and natural and accurate. Mm. And um, after a conversation after the first service, I realized I should give an example of that. Um, so you're getting a little more information than the other two services did. Um, so specifically, what are the kinds of things that we'll be doing? Um, in English... We have one first-person plural pronoun, we, right? Um, but there are different ways that we can use we, um, so, or us, depending on whether it's the subject or the object. So there's also that. Um, so we can say, we are all gathered here to worship God. Um, and that's one kind of we. And that's different than say, well, you know, it's us versus them. Uh, one of those we's, or us's, is, is inclusive. We're all included in it. We're part of the group. We are all gathered here to worship God. Whereas the other one, that sets a boundary. Mm. It excludes someone. Yeah. Right there. Um, and, and there are hundreds of languages all over the world that make a distinction between those two kinds of we's. Everyone versus exclusive. Uh, that when they encounter a we in the Bible, they, they have to make the choice. They are obligated. If they don't make the choice, they, 
it doesn't work because they have the two, and it, there's one or the other. Mm. Um, so when they read the Bible, they're constantly in need of asking this question of themselves because this isn't a distinction in uh, Hebrew, and it isn't a distinction in Greek for the Old and New Testaments. So they need resources um, that sort of give advice. Uh, so what if somebody, maybe us, uh, went through the entire Bible and made a list on, on, their, on the computer of all of the we's in the Bible and said, well, these ones um, are probably most likely inclusive, all of the people we's. And these ones are exclusive, just some of the people we's. And we, and we maybe like, get, put some notes in there too and made some recommendations and gave advice. And they were able to, rather than just work through verse by verse, they could, oh, well, we need a we're stuck here. Well, let's pull up the whole list of all of them, and we can sort of look at them all in context. Um, so you're resourcing them. We are resourcing them with extra information so that they can make better decisions about their Bible translations. Okay. So what are, um, what, what's the state of Bible translation today? I think there's still 2,000 languages that don't yes. have a Bible. Yeah, 2,000 out of about 7,000 languages have no Bible at all. Um, there are 700 New Test- Bibles, complete Bibles, Old and New Testaments that are completed, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Um, and it's very important work in the context of um, spiritual growth for uh, individual believers in these language communities. Many, many of these communities without Bibles do have churches and do have believers, and um, They rely on a pastor who perhaps can read French or Spanish to be able to understand what is in Scripture. And having the Bible in their own language means that they can test and approve God's word for themselves without Mm. just sort of taking his word for it, Mm. um, the pastor. And also it gives, Scripture in their own language gives this new opportunity for outreach and evangelism as well. Because if you're a community of uh, speakers of a minority language, and you just got your first book uh, of your own, everyone now needs to learn how to read. So now suddenly the church is a hub of ministry and outreach to the community through literacy classes. Um, And unbelievers get to come to the church and not just learn how to read, but learn how to read using the Bible Hmm. and hear God's word at the Hmm. same time. That's exciting. Related to that, tell us about one of the stories that strikes you. Yeah, uh, there's more than one way to get God's word into people's hands. So imagine if you lost everything in your life, your home, maybe some members of your family, all of your possessions. This is the story of the South Sudanese who have been displaced because of civil war to Uganda, They're living in a refugee camp, the Bitty Bitty Refugee Camp. And there was a visitor who went to the Bitty Bitty Refugee Camp to see the people and see the state of things for them. And this visitor encountered people were meeting in groups together, and they were smiling, and they were dancing. And this visitor said, you've lost everything. Why are you smiling? And here's why they were smiling. They were listening to God's word, God's stories to his people, spoken to them in their own language for the first time. Mm. This is something they'd never encountered before, something of value more so, a thousand times more so than anything they had ever possessed. And so in this people group, there was a woman who said, I'm uneducated, I've never been in a school, I can't read, I can't write, I've never been in a class before, but because of this, I can hear God's word Mm -hmm. and I can understand it for myself. Mm -hmm. And how can she do that? There's a device called the Proclaimer that can be used anywhere in the world because it's powered by a hand crank in solar power, so that it does not need to be plugged in. And these people can hear 
the translated scriptures in their own language and they can carry it with them wherever they go. So they would hold these to their hearts mm-hmm. as they're walking around in the refugee camp saying, yes, mm-hmm. this is my father or this is my mother because this brings me life. I have joy. In this world, you will have trouble, but I give you my peace that where I am, you will also be. And they knew that Jesus was in the camp with them. One man wept when he heard the Mm. proclaimer, when he heard Jesus' words spoken to him in a way that he could understand because he was devastated. The war had left him blind. And so he could not read the scriptures for himself, but now he could hear them spoken. And they spoke to his heart, Mm. just like the scripture spoke to us today, that we can learn from it so also they can when they hear it in their own language and understand. Wow, what a privilege to partner with you guys as you are involved in this Bible translation and supporting Bible translators around the globe. Uh, Edgewood's a praying church, and we want to know how we can pray for you as well. So give us a couple prayer requests. Yeah, I'll give the first one. I'll let Michael do the second. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 talks about living a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I would ask you as a church to pray for us, to pray that verse on our behalf, that we would serve well, that we would live up to our calling, that we would do our work with excellence, so that our work can then touch and help complete Mm. Bibles all over the world. Mm. Yeah, and additionally, um, you can... uh, Give a prayer of thanksgiving for us first because we are headed to Dallas, Texas to start our work um, creating resources. And much of that is because of the fact that your congregation is partnering with us financially. Uh, you have brought us up to 99% of, our, of the budget that Wycliffe has set for us. Um, we're just about $100 short monthly of our goal. And you can also pray that that last little bit of money will come in so that we can begin serving Bible translation fully equipped and fully funded for long-term sustainable future. Um, And pray maybe even, too, that if um, God would have it on your heart to help us get that last little bit monthly, we would um, greatly appreciate that as well. Great. Hey, you guys, thanks for joining us. Let's show them our love and support. Thank Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to invite you to stand, and as you're standing, if the Aubreys would make their way out, there's a table in the south lobby. Stop by there if you'd like. Sign up for their email. Uh, That'd be great. God, now would you send us out. Lord, you call us all to live on mission to our families, to our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, and to take the gospel to the nations. Would you bless the Aubreys, help them to give themselves fully to you to do good, excellent, precise work on your behalf. We pray with them that you would provide the financial support they still need. Lord, we offer ourselves to you now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.